This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, Taylor, the single most read story on the Bloomberg Terminal over the last eight hours, J.P. Morgan offers free trades in escalating fight for retail. Big news out of J.P. Morgan this morning, driving discount broker stocks lower, not surprisingly. So to help us break it down, we have Michelle Davis, finance reporter and JPM beat reporter here at Bloomberg News, as well as Jeff Snyder. He is the founder and CEO of the consulting firm, The Morning Pulse, both joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So, Michelle, I want to start with you. Why now? Why is J.P. Morgan bringing this to market? So this is this follows on something that uh, Jamie Dimon mentioned to investors a couple of years ago um, in response to questions about you know how Amazon is changing everything from you know grocery stores to bookstores. Uh, he said that he thinks that you know he, at that time he thought in a few years that. J.P. Morgan would be able to offer a similar product for, you know, retail investors when it comes to brokerages. And that's why at this time they're rolling this out, you know, as brokerages across the world are, are lowering their fees and, and there's this increased competition. It's kind of a race to the bottom and a way for him to uh, or for J.P. Morgan to increase its deposit base and, and get more clients. Jeff, I want to bring you in here because as president and CEO of The Morning Pulse, you cover all things defined contribution, retirement plans, the retail investor. What was your reaction? Surprised? Uh, too late? Too early? What was your take? I don't think it's it's surprise. I think this is kind of the, the trend is consolidation. You're seeing a lot of digitization of finance, fintech. Uh, so I think this is kind of in line. They want to create – J.P. Morgan, I think, wants to create an ecosystem – uh, most providers want to create an ecosystem where, where people can shop in one central area. So it just makes sense from a business perspective. Um, and I think you know they're obviously taking heed in doing that. Right. So if you're at Ameritrade or Schwab today and you see this, you're probably not surprised, as you're not. Uh, but it's not great news. What, what do you do in response if you're sitting over there? Well, I think – you know, you've got you know. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it's fees are important. They're vital. Uh, people look at that, and it entices people to take a take a look and see what uh, they can get. Um, I think you know. Often in the defined contribution world, it's a uh, we've seen people lower their fees in yeah. response. So you have Fidelity, the vanguards trying to match the vanguards of the world. You know, I would suspect that that might happen where you have people get a free look for a period of time. Then they can check out, you know, take a test drive and see what type of research they can get. Right. Can they effectuate tra- trades that make sense? What's available, et cetera, et cetera. Michelle, it was really interesting to me about halfway through your story. What I was intrigued by is it said J.P. Morgan is also giving retail clients access to equity reports published by their investment bank research team. And they'll receive it now at the same time that institutional investors receive those research reports. How big of a deal is that? It's pretty shocking and it's a huge deal because t- technically or typically equity research has been pretty expensive and, and closed off from retail investors, even from the press. And so the fact that they're offering this to anyone who has a mobile banking app is is huge. So, Jeff, what happens next? I mean, 
does JP Morgan sort of fellow bulge bracket uh, banks? So do they follow one here? How does this play through the rest of the market? Well, I think I think certainly people take a look, and they are going to be. There's some trepidation. They 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 kind of try to figure out what's what's going to happen here, yeah. and do they devote you know assets and resources in order to follow suit? You know, it is people kind of follow the leader in the space. So if it's working for JP Morgan right. and Maybe it'll work for other banks. Michelle, I got to ask you briefly about Jamie Dimon here. I mean, he has become much more vocal and seemingly a little more sort of aggressive. You know, you mentioned the the Bezos citation. They're working together on this big healthcare project along with Warren Buffett. What what does this tell you about sort of the Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan of August 2018? Well, it kind of makes sense. If you think about it, um, you know, when when Jamie Dimon took on his role as CEO uh, before the crisis and then during the crisis, a lot of his job was focused on the day-to-day operations of the firm, you know, making sure that it was up and running. But now, you know, 10 years down the road, everything's running pretty nicely. He's put everything in place. And so he has more time to go and, and give his opinions on, on economic policy or on trade policy and on, you know, thinking about bigger picture. How can we be like the tech giants? Well, and it was interesting, too, that uh, it's really sort of a play to get them into other areas of the business that J.P. Morgan is trying to perhaps maybe use this to attract clients to look at other like financial advice or to get them hooked into higher price investments. So this is sort of a, a way to get them into the door to make them bigger and better customers down the road. Right. And another, I guess, area of competition that banks have been dealing with right now is this the competition for deposits, because as interest rates have been increased, increasing, you know, uh, customers have an incentive to move their money to whatever is going to pay them most. And uh, this could be one way for JP Morgan to try to make sure that clients stay with them. So Jeff, about 30 seconds left. What's the next big disruption uh, in this market? Well, I I want to just touch on retirement plans because this this is a big deal in the retail space. It's not yet a big deal in the retirement Ah. marketplace. And let me clarify why. In the retirement plan marketplace, the adoption of self-directed brokerage is very, very low, less than 5% fiduciary issues, fees, other things, and you tend not to have the open architecture that you do as a retail investor. So I think for me, what I want to see or what I think will happen in the retirement space is things like managed accounts and other types of uh, portfolio allocation strategies become more prevalent over time. Great. Uh, Jeff Snyder, founder and CEO of the consulting firm Morning Pulse, based here in New York, with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, as well as Michelle Davis, finance reporter, JPM beat reporter here at Bloomberg News. Thank you both. Very interesting story, Taylor. I think this is this is an ongoing story. I think we're going to be following for a while. Way bigger issue to discuss about fees. We could get into active versus passive management, the battle over all of that fees. I mean, it's just a, a drive to zero in yeah. terms of fees. Good morning. Good Won't you see things here with Jason Kelly. And Jason, as you were just discussing, we get to talk a lot about some of the great articles that are showing up in our Bloomberg Business Week magazine. And particularly uh, right now, we have Paula Dwyer. Um, Paula, you wrote a story this week, and it's called Trump's War on Blue States, and talking about how some of these latest tactics are upending blue state economic models. I want you to walk us through some of the different targeted attacks that you are looking at, and particularly Obamacare premium changes and the 
SALT tax deductions, of course, capped at $10,000. Yeah, so I think um, a lot of what Trump has done in the last 18, 19 months is declare war on the blue states. It's hard to see what the rhyme or reason is of his policies if you look at them one by one. But if you stand back and see what he's done on tax reform, um, on education, on Obamacare, on climate change, it, it all adds up to me as a strategy to declare war on the economic model of the blue states. And that economic model is high tax, but also a high um, or very strong social safety net, um, strong support for public education, uh, a welcoming environment for immigrants and therefore needing more of a safety net to take care of them, um, strong uh, uh, regulations on climate change, for example, the um, fuel economy standards that 13 blue states have. Um, there are many ways that he, Trump, has gone after blue states, and I think that that is his shtick these days, is to see what he can do, not just to uh, hurt their well-being, but to undermine their entire economic model. So so let's talk about one element that hits very close to home, pun intended, especially for our listeners here in the New York area, which is the state and local tax deduction cap. Yes. Uh, how is that specifically playing through and how does it fit this narrative that you describe in your column? Yeah. So if you look at the really one and only big legislative achievement of the Trump administration so far, it is the tax overhaul that he signed in December. And it has now started to work its way through to the level of real estate prices and sales. What it did was it put a $10,000 cap on what any one individual can uh, claim in deductions for the payment of state taxes, local taxes, and property taxes. $10,000 in a state like New York or New Jersey or Connecticut doesn't go very far. It probably takes care of anybody who lives in a place like Mississippi, but it's probably only like a, a half to a third of what people pay in high tax, high cost of living, and high real estate price states. So um, what what's happened is we're, we're seeing a slowdown in sales, especially in places like Westchester County, um, which is the enclave, uh, the suburban community for a lot of New York City commuters, uh, people who have invested a lot in their homes and were hoping to sell them as their retirement nest egg are having trouble selling those houses now. And the reason people are giving is that they don't want to take on those high carrying costs of having the, the, the high property taxes to pay. So you're now seeing a slowdown in the real estate market in high-end homes. And then um, people haven't even filed their 2018 income taxes yet. So this is really going to play through next year when they do pay 2018 taxes, when they see how this cap is really going to pinch them when it comes to property taxes. If property taxes have to go down, then that harms the there, – there's a knock-on effect. It harms public education because schools are mainly funded through property taxes. So there's – there is by, by using tax reform, Trump has managed to um, go after – many sacred cows in the blue states. Paula, how rare is this? I mean, have we seen Republican presidents in the past target blue states or Democrats in the past target red states, especially before a big election year? About 30 seconds. 
it's never been targeted by state like that in my memory. Uh, mo- mostly, whenever presidents have have done things, it's ha- it's they've had the entire country in mind, and this does seem to be m- much more selective. And anyway, Republicans usually believed in states' rights, so this does seem to f- fly in the face of what was a um, a, a Republican principle. Paula Dwyer, Bloomberg News Senior Editor, bringing us a sneak peek of the opening remarks in this week's issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Great to be with you. And Taylor? And I liked what she said at the end about how Republicans usually prefer less government. But in this case, it seems like instead of wanting the power to the states, sort of letting the Fed usurp some of the rules. And uh, we could switchly change notes around here as well. We just got a redhead coming across the, the, the Bloomberg that the Brazilian Real has now fallen to four dollars that is its lowest in two and a half years almost nothing has been as interesting as emerging markets and their currencies over the last week or so largely kicked off by all of the drama in Turkey to help us understand where it is and where it's going. We have Aaron Hurd. He is managing director and senior portfolio manager in the currency group at State Street Global Advisors, aka SSGA. Joining us on the phone from Boston. Aaron, great to be with you. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Your life has been very interesting over the last couple of weeks as you try and make sense of all of this. So what's the big driver right now as you see it, especially as Turkey seems to have calmed down at least a little bit? What are you looking at? Yeah, the, the big driver right now uh, really is you know, the same as it has been all year, which is the rising U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, a bit of a crowded trade and, and due for a correction here, um, which may have started a couple of days ago, but we'll have, to, uh, we'll have to see how this plays out. Um, but that, uh, plus rising U.S. interest rates over the last year, uh, put a lot of uh, pressure on uh, emerging markets' uh, funding costs. And that tends to you know, reduce growth expectations and uh, pressure the currencies. Um, but we're very cautious not to think about EM, and, and I caution your listeners not to think about EM as a whole. Right, back in the late 90s, it uh, made sense. You know, most EM countries were, were highly indebted and, and dependent on foreign lending. Uh, during 2002 to 2006, uh, you had heavy reliance on the offshoring uh, boom and the commodity boom. So these were common factors affecting all of EM. Now it's much more diverse, um, and uh, they're simply not going to respond to the, the same factors. So we have to really look through um, and, you know, in this case, look at the currencies with uh, funding vulnerabilities. Um, so you have often called the Fragile Five, you have South Africa, Indonesia, India, Colombia, obviously Turkey. Um, and there, um, yeah, I think we'll continue to see uh, significant pressure. Um, in a way, that's good. Um, it's very bad for the people on the ground in those economies, um, and we have a great deal of sympathy uh, for that. You know, but it does create opportunities. Um, in particular, uh, if we look at a current account, current account means you're borrowing money uh, from the rest of the world. That's fine. If you borrow money as a corporation or a, com- or a country and you invest that money productively, you create income, that income is used to pay back the debt. That is good debt. It's good borrowing. Um, Indonesia and Colombia uh, seem to fit that profile. Um, you know, we would guess that they're in for some more pain um, in, the, in the coming weeks and coming months, um, but they do provide an opportunity. Um, they have def- you know, decent uh, coverage in that their borrowing 
uh, in covering their current account through FDI or foreign direct investment. Um, so that is a very stable form of investment. Aaron, I want to talk a little bit about political risk. We just got a headline crossing over here as I shift your attention to the Brazilian real. It is now pushing through that four per U.S. dollar. Um, It's weakest now in about two and a half years relative to the U.S. dollar as the left is really showing gains and increases in their election polls. With Brazil and generally speaking, how do you time or play or measure political risk? Uh, We've had a lot of elections recently, uh, seems to be hurting at least Brazil in this case and some of the other emerging market currencies. How do you measure that? Yeah, we want to look at it uh, in in two ways. Uh, One is short term, one is long term. Not rock and science, I guess. Um, Short term, your headlines matter. Um, These headlines uh, matter and uh, will continue to matter for Brazil. And that increases uncertainty and more often than not tends to put uh, pressure on a currency. So we want to avoid those. But we also want to look at those uh, corrections as opportunities. Um, And there we really want to look at the medium and long term uh, political picture. Um, And unfortunately, Governance has not been a strong point, so we measure that through a variety of governance indicators that look at uh, the overall level of, you know, say, corruption and government effectiveness and so forth. Um, in there, you know, Brazil scores fairly low um, in, in our models, um, and you know, that shows up in a lack of effective investment, you know, whether it's through uh, corruption, and we've certainly seen our share of, of headlines uh, pertaining to corruption out of Brazil. Um, but that you know, money that's destined for investment gets siphoned off into corruption and, and inefficient uses, and that lowers the potential growth rate. Um, so there, we're not, uh, even if, uh, in this case, Brazil sells off more, um, it's going to have to sell off substantially more before it's interesting to us. Um, we really have to see a new government in place, and we have to see uh, those government practices uh, change and evolve um, to really be more focused on enhancing potential growth. So, Aaron, as we alluded to at the top, I mean, Turkey obviously is not quite as on fire from a political and economic perspective as it was a couple of weeks ago. But there still is more of this story to come. As you parse that out, and as you game it out, what's your advice to investors on how to view uh, Turkey and the lira right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, Turkey's a fantastic country. I have a lot of friends, uh, your Turkish friends. And unfortunately, we're just in the first innings of this. Um, we had you know, an initial uh, currency, I call it a crisis. Um, the lira dropped. And now comes the hard work of cleaning up the problems that caused that collapse. Right? And so now uh, you know, it was a debt-fueled growth model. Right? Companies borrowed. Uh, much of that borrowing was in external currency, uh, euro, U.S. dollar. Um, and that really powered growth higher. Now that the lira is weak, and maybe you know the recent measures can can stop the panic selling, um, but the debt fueled growth model can't be sustained. Those companies now have larger debt burdens; they can't afford to borrow anymore. Uh, banks, um, even if they can roll over loans and avoid solvency issues and, and defaults, um, there's still going to be more constraint and won't be able to lend. So now Turkey has to find a new growth model. While that's happening, inflation is, is spiking higher, already over 15%, and just the move in the currency should bring it over 20%. Um, so that's you know, kind of a hardcore stagflation, and that could take years to play out. Um, so our medium to long-term view on Turkey is still uh, quite negative, um, and I would 
you'll sum it up by cautioning your listeners not to assume that because the immediate panic volatility is over that the problems are over. I mean, we should see a steady depreciation. Very good. Aaron Hurd, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager in the Currency Group at State Street Global Advisors, joining us on the phone from Boston. Taylor, it is interesting that this emerging market story seems to have gotten a little more complicated. And as Aaron alluded to at the top of the conversation, this is not the emerging markets play of a few years ago. Well, and it's really interesting. A week ago, we kept hearing one-off, idiosyncratic, no contagion, and then slowly it's two, three weeks later, it's it's still a, a story. And, and he also had a note here on the Chinese yuan and the weakness that's natural in the context of a higher dollar. And of course, this morning, we're getting more comments saying that China is not going to use a competitive currency devaluation as their foreign exchange tool in a trade war. So a lot going on as it relates to really all the And it is important to note, as Aaron did, that all of this in many ways comes back to the dollar, Mm -hmm. which I feel like has been an ongoing and very complicated discussion, even apparently within (laughs) the U.S. administration. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Taylor Riggs on Bloomberg Radio. And Jason, there has been a lot of talk recently about our midterm elections, technology companies, connection to Russian hacking and influencing our elections. And uh, we have another great story out today wrapping this all together. Joining us now is Dina Bash. She's our Seattle bureau chief. And Dina, I want you to walk us through the story um, because we got news that Microsoft has detected and seized web domains from cyber hackers that are linked to the Russian military. Again, this appears to be just more attempts to sort of influence our elections. How did Microsoft catch them? Sure. So one of Microsoft's assets is a massive email software empire through Outlook uh, and Hotmail and Outlook.com. And they noticed that there were these phishing attempts coming in where people were receiving emails with a link that purported to be a legitimate um, conservative GOP think tank, but were actually directing people to these domains that were run by a Russian hacking group that has connections to the Russian government and that has been implicated in past hacks of the U.S. government as well as European governments and agencies. So they they noticed, uh, they noticed that, tracked it back, found uh, these sites, and now they're trying to look at them a little more closely and figure out exactly what this group was trying to do. Dina, you've been looking at tech companies, specifically Microsoft, but also many tech companies for a long time. Give us some context for what's happening in the tech world and why maybe they're being a little bit more forward-facing, a little more public about these hacks at this point. Sure. I think Microsoft's been a little different than some of the other tech companies in sort of embracing their role as a a gatekeeper, hacker, defeater uh, than some of the others. I think they've been around the block for a lot longer, and they also really embrace kind of this public policy role. Some of their uh, competitors, Facebook and Twitter among them, were a little bit slower to come to the realization that they they and their uh, assets and their content play, play a significant role in these sorts of hacking things. And we've talked a lot just, you know, Jason, about tech companies and their role in all of this and and their role in democracy. And the Microsoft chief legal officer, that's Brad Smith, he spoke to us earlier today uh, to Bloomberg. Let's listen in to what he had to say. 
This is a moment in time when we should reflect as a nation and really across democratic societies around the world that 21st century democracy will flourish only if we take new steps to protect it. And these steps cannot be confined to one political party or to people in government. We need to come together in the tech sector, across the tech sector, and in partnership with democratic governments around the world. So, Dina, are tech companies taking enough steps to protect democracy, as we just heard from the chief legal officer, Brad Smith, and Microsoft? I think we're seeing companies be much more active. We've seen Facebook take down a bunch of sites. I, I, the challenge here is that insecurity, a lot of this is whack-a-mole, right? So Microsoft took down these six, but in the run-up to the, the midterms, we're probably going to see a lot more. And Microsoft's also been calling for about 18 months for some sort of agreement between nation states to stop hacking civilians, and it's not clear that they've gotten anywhere with that. I mean, Brad Smith in particular has tried to position himself, and, and Microsoft is a bit of a sort of convener-in-chief on mm. these issues, but it, it's hard to get anywhere if none of the, none of the countries involved are going to uh, repudiate these sort of tactics. And so what happens next in your estimation, again, knowing this company intimately and knowing sort of how they operate from a playbook perspective? What does Microsoft do next? What is the broader tech industry? Uh, what do they look to do from here? I think Microsoft will continue to be on top of this and continue to monitor these networks through their digital crimes unit. I think the other uh, companies are, have now gotten religion about that as well. One of the questions, though, I think is whether there's a U.S. government response to this and whether this brings people who have been a little bit on the sidelines or feeling that the Russian government is not such a threat, um, whether that brings them more uh, into an active role, particularly given that these this target were uh, um, Republican uh, targets, not Democratic targets, not candidates, but rather Republican. Republican affiliated think tanks. Right. Yeah. And how likely would it be for U.S. Congress to look at more sanctions, for example? And we did sanctions the last time this happened. And has it worked? Is it enough? There's been a lot of discussion about it today. A number of, of senators and congressmen, uh, Congress people, have come out and said that they, there should be activity. There were already discussions. I, you know, I think it's a real challenge to figure out whether there's something they can do that's going to be effective. I also wonder, as this gets more uh, attention, will uh, you know, will it just help with consumers, uh, average people, people working at these think tanks, sort of making them more aware that they should be careful uh, both about what they're reading and where it's coming from, but also about phishing attempts. Google came out last night with a blog post reiterating to people that if you get a warning from Gmail saying, hey, you know, you might be the victim of a phishing attempt, take these things seriously. Yeah. Is that the number one thing that consumers can do? Uh, I, I mean, I think just be be wary and be aware. I, I mean, it's it's the problem is some of these, particularly the spear phishing attempts that target a specific person with specific access credentials that a hacker wants, can be very sophisticated, very personalized. Dina Bass, Seattle Bureau Chief, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I should point out, as I did last week when we were talking to Ian King, former teammate on the U.S. tech team, rock star of rock stars. Uh, nice to be with you in person. Thanks for coming and in. And I imagine uh, she'll be back joining us soon because as the midterms get ever so close, I feel like this is a story that will just sort of be coming and we'll hear uh, a lot more about some of these attempts and how these tech companies uh, can try to thwart them. Absolutely. Yeah, this is not a story that is going away anytime soon. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Jason Kelly and Taylor Riggs here with you on a Tuesday afternoon. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. 
Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is Drive to the Close. I'm Taylor Riggs here with Jason Kelly. Um, a lot going on as we approach the closing bell in about 10 minutes' time. Of course, all eyes are on the S&P 500. We had an intraday high. Uh, looks like, though, on a closing basis, may not get there. We're about 10 points shy uh, right now, S&P, at about a 28.62. The number we're looking for is a 28.72 on a closing basis to get to that record high that we last saw on January 26th. But still, nonetheless, an exciting day and no better uh, individual to join us here than Omar Aguilar. He's the chief investment officer of equities at Charles Schwab Investment Management. And Omar, it's great you're joining us from San Francisco because what's uh, really interesting about this rally in particular is tech has really been leading the gains. What do you make about tech after what has been in the past few months a pretty rocky ride? Yes, hi. Thanks for uh, having me again. Um, yeah, well, we, we saw a little bit of this risk on market, uh, a lot of the anxieties about trade wars and a lot of the different wall of worries issues we have had over the last few weeks seem to be forgotten for at least today. And as you uh, mentioned, we're at uh, almost all-time high for you know all the indices. We're very close. Um, uh, and a lot of that is uh, we saw a little bit of rotation going at the end of the first six months from what these so-called FANG stocks, sort of high-flying, you know, very popular, you know, technology names that drove uh, 76% of the S&P 500 performance in the first six months of the year. And for a period of time on July and the beginning of August, we saw a little bit of a transition. And today, we seem to be going back to that risk on uh, cyclical flavor where we are excited about the future. We think that the U.S. Uh, economic growth will continue to lead, and therefore, consumer cyclical technologies should be the way for leading, you know, these performance going forward. And Omar, you know, one of the themes that seems like we continue to hit upon is this rising market near record levels, as you and Taylor have both said, and in the face of some big geopolitical uncertainties and specifically some political uncertainties here in the United States around tariffs. Why has that not played through as much or and do you expect it to at some point or have we moved past it? Great question. I think what we have observed over the last three weeks is really, is really this uh, trade-off between um, what I consider to be a uh, you know, significant amount of um, concerns globally, uh, and that includes um, obviously the crisis in Turkey that we cannot forget, right. just lower growth in China, failing commodity prices, trade tensions, uh, rising U.S. interest rates. You know, those are enough um, reasons for people to be concerned about what the future might look like. 
On the other hand, however, we seem to be having, you know, one of the best economies we have had in a long time. You know, we continue to see the benefits of the corporate tax reform that we saw from the administration last year. We saw a, quite an amazing earnings um, quarter reporting from corporations that still, you know, continue to see uh, the benefits of these uh, corporate tax changes. And on top of that, we see an increased numbers of stock buybacks that provide a very nice support for equity. Market. So when you look at, you know, the positives, that seems to be the underlying component of where, you know, the economy is strong, earnings are pretty good, valuations are not that stretched that are driving markets up. If you want to diversify abroad, international equities, uh, where do you look? I know in your note, you've talked a lot about how emerging markets are facing a little bit of a wall of worry. So if you go to the international developed markets, what's your single biggest excitement point? Well, you know, I, I do believe that uh, despite all the concerns that people uh, are placing now on emerging markets, um, you know, the, the, the overall region, and when you have to look at by regions, it still looks pretty attractive. The valuations uh, of emerging markets are actually pretty good, and now it's even better after, you know, the, the underperformance they saw um, uh, here. The, the, the part that they have in their favor in the long run is the fact that people are underinvested in emerging markets. They have a demographic advantage. They have uh, the potential for growth. And for the first time, you know, again, with, you know, exceptions, we actually see that there is more um, stability across, you know, the majority of the major emerging markets. You know, I always, um, you know, try to um, tell clients that, you know, when you think about the headlines coming from Turkey, you have to put it in perspective of the size of that economy and what the potential impact may be in the rest of emerging markets. I think it's very natural and behavioral for people to extrapolate what happens in one country and eventually look at what may happen to the other countries. Just to put it in perspective, Turkey is is less than 1% of the MSCI Emerging Market Index. Omar Aguilar, Chief Investment Officer of Equities at Charles Schwab Investment Management, joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.